0: was surely the most beautiful sound I've heard in Makashtan. Thank you for doing Amazing Grace. It's one of the songs I've spent a lot of time in the African-American community, and, and Amazing Grace, as probably a lot of you know, um, became an abolition song. Um, uh, the irony of it is that when John Newton wrote that in or 1762, the, the the great wretchedness that he was describing was actually his personal sin. He had an incredibly bad mouth, and he had drinking habit, and, and there were a number of personal sins that. So he wasn't necessarily he, at the time that he wrote the song. He was still a slave. Uh, he wasn't a slave owner, but he was still invested in the slave trade. When he died, uh, as you probably know, in 1788, late in the game, he came into the abolition movement, and he was huge in terms of helping Wilberforce and Clarkson and all these guys do the heavy lifting they needed to do. And he died in 1808, just about a month after... The abolition, the um, slave trade was finally abolished. But here's the thing about that song, Amazing Grace, that I so love when God tells a story. When Amazing Grace was written, it was sung maybe once or twice. And when, when John Newton's greatest hits were published at the end of his life... And there were literally 300 songs published. And then, I don't know if you know this, but they were published in those days with just the words, just the lyrics, not with what, with the music. But out of those 300 songs, Amazing Grace was not on there. It totally disappeared until Scottish shape note singers took it to the American South, and American slaves sang it and put it to another melody. So we have no idea what melody. um, John Newton put it to. We know he had six verses. But by the time it was done singing on plantations, there were sometimes hundreds of verses. And, of course, as you all know, then in the 60s it went global because of Martin Luther King and the Civil Rights Movement and then the the Vietnam War. The reason I say that about world change or transformation is... is, I mean, you probably know that Amazing Grace is the sixth most performed song a year. And it is an unflinching gospel message. It's, it's sung when, when military men die. It's sung when police die. It's the one thing, because of its emotional resonance, because of its authenticity, that non-Christians sing with great power. And I think it's been used to to draw a lot of people into the faith. But what I find so special about it is, who do you give the credit to? I mean, John Newton wrote the first six verses, but we have no idea what the music was. But then the the, slaves in the American South gave it the melody. You know, revivalists, and then uh, Martin Luther King made it go global. I mean, who do you give it to? I mean, it just... One of the things I love about that song is is that at every stage along the way, somebody can get credit, which is, if it's really God's song, shouldn't everybody get the credit for that? Anyway, that's not what I want to talk about tonight, but I, <laughs> I love that song. So back in the 90s, there was a, an artist who was a developer of children, and he started to get a little bit alarmed because of the rapid decline of art as kids got older, so he started to track it. So, with, with numbers of years and numbers of schools, he would go in routinely and find out that first graders, when he asked how many of you are artists, all of them, someone would jump on their desk, but they'd get to their feet, they'd raise their hands, and they'd be enthusiastic, but it'd be, it would be unanimous. By second grade, that was cut in half there was a little less enthusiasm by third grade it was cut in half again and that continued to happen with a diminution of enthusiasm until by sixth grade the only people that would tacitly or tentatively raise their hands would be one or two usually in the corner that would admit that they were closet artists you're probably wondering why I'm asking this question the re- or I'm telling you this story. The reason that I'm telling this story is because I feel like if we grow up too fast and graduate out of our artistic insight, we will actually miss out on the accurate insight that goes with creative expression. I believe we're in a world, in my 61 years of life, and I've seen the Cold War ramp up. I've seen a war on poverty ramp up and then decline. I've seen multiple downturns in the economy. I've seen the Berlin Wall come down. I think we're in, the, in a time that is more troubled than I've ever seen. And I don't think we can bring generic cultural Profiling, identity-annihilating profiling, to some of the deep personal pain that is going on in the world. There is nothing accurate about tired eyes. So one of the things I love about interchange, we're about 100 people, we come from about 60 countries, so don't look at me and think interchange is largely white. That's not true. Um, but, but about a third of us are artists. And one of the reasons that I like to have artists on teams is because when they see places that others only see jagged edges, they see the kingdom peeking out. And they also, even more important, when they go into places that are slums or barrios or others, they see capacity where other people see problems to be fixed. And if you're in the empowerment business, and I tell you, we're in a world of great trouble, there is no fixing that world apart from empowering people that are the stakeholders to to transform their communities. And artists have a leg up on that because they creatively cooperate with the Spirit of God to see what isn't until it is. Does that make sense? Well, I said I'd start as an artist first, and I, and I, I want to start with this drawing, which maybe it'll help if I pull this down. Um. Sorry, I'm not a real tech genius. Oh actually that won't help it is, is there somebody that can we move this over so that um thanks guys. I love all the help you get when you're like an elderly. <laughs> Thank you guys. So hopefully this is clear enough. This is um you can you can see it later on. Um because I, I started a Christian order and one of our core values or, or commitments is simplicity. So I was a painter and I painted to get through graduate school. I love the motion and emotion of color. But in the grip of a real depression in 1995, and a counselor told me that if I went back to my art, it would really be helpful. In fact, he said, "If you go back to your art, it'll be more important than anything you or I do say in here." So I took him up for, at his word at that. But then I, as I started to think about investing in paint and all that stuff again, I felt like God said to me, "Do what's simple." Do what's simple. And there's nothing simpler than pencil and paper. And the other thing was there was no market for it at that time either, which was really great because I wasn't then clamoring to get into shows and getting competitive. It was purely therapeutic. So, um, and the other thing I love about pencil too is just, it's. I mean, I always say the point of the pencil is the point. I mean, you can't cover a lot of ground with the point of a pencil. So it's the most ridiculously inefficient medium out there. And I just, I don't know about you, but I love that because I am so tired of, of being pressed into a world on fast forwards. It's my way of saying, you know what, good things can go slow. Anyway, so it is pencil. It's all pencil. And... Um, Uh, Just let me tell you a few things about it before we go to a passage that kind of, I think, will illustrate it a little bit more. This is called Safe Mission, and it's grown out of my... Is it clear enough for you guys to see? Okay, good. It's grown out of my great grief that despite the fact that we have some of the best missiologists in the world now analyzing the way we did colonial mission... um, I think in 30 years we're doing something that's going to be even more clumsy. Because two-thirds to three-quarters of the mission from the West now to the majority world is short-term and superficial. Short-term and superficial. We are sending our most inexperienced people, usually young people, with the inadequate life experience, with the improbable expectations and inappropriate technology to places like this where they they don't know language, they don't know culture, they don't know how to survive, and they can't really communicate. They have wonderful hearts, and some of them have life-changing experiences. But the impact on the ground is negligible. And yet, they have to go home and slideshow to their church that they had this great impact, hence the helicopter in the sky. It's sort of like, oh, we went on this mission trip to... Nairobi and we were there for seven or eight days and we played with some kids and we built we laid the foundation of some buildings and we showed Jesus to so many people hence the helicopter in the sky showing Jesus to this entire community do you see that That's what we go home, and we do, because it feels that momentous to us. Notice in the the helicopter, you can't see anybody's faces because this kind of ministry is fairly faceless on the ground like that. And all I want to say is by the time we show people that kind of a Jesus, we succeed in showing people a dead, stone-bound, western Jesus. And I grieve that. Now, don't hear me say that PEF or any of the... If you're going on short-term missions, good. I'm not saying that all short-term missions is bad. I'm saying if all we do is short-term missions, because it ticks our box for compassion for a decade, then we are fraud, we are defrauding the majority world. I'm a dad of daughters. So the only figure I put in this landscape, can you see the little girl on the left that I've almost made diaphanous of it because, you know, they can't really see her? But she's turned away, not because she's angry or anguished, but just because this message doesn't make sense to her. I had a really emotional moment drawing in this, and I don't know if you, if, if you can see the, can you see the hanging clothes in the left corner there? So I draw left to right because I don't have time to figure out I mean I just I, I have a day job and I don't have a lot of time to do to sketch out and, and, and this one I there's some problems with it I wish I could have corrected, but it was good enough to print. Um, but I was only I was in that corner, so I just draw left to right so I don't smear. And I'm a fairly emotional person. I started to tremble and I had to put my pencil down because I was I was drawing those clothes. Because I realized I, as, as much as I've lived in places like this, and I have friends in places like this, this was a slum in, in, on the Saigon River that I actually didn't know. And I was drawing the intimacy of somebody's life just because they didn't have the economic wherewithal to cover it. And that gave me pause. And I felt like God said to me at that time, I felt like He said, well, now you know what it was like to hang on the cross and watch your clothes publicly displayed at the foot, and when i when he when I felt like he said that to me, then i decided okay i 'm going to make uh, i 'm going to show that Jesus is in this, so i don 't know if you can see it, but see the three crosses on both sides there 's three crosses in the form of like aerials and other things. And you'll be able to see this more clearly on the hard copy later on if you want to come up and look. But I believe that Jesus is more comfortable on a cross than on a pedestal when his people are in pain. And I wanted to show that Jesus was in in this drawing. There's a lot more I probably could say about um, this drawing. But I want to get to our passage, which I think kind of leads into this. But part of the reason I showed this drawing to you is because I want to say to you, cultivate your eyesight. Even if you're not an artist, cultivate creative eyes that see people past the stereotypes and the generic ways that we see people and see into places like that. And that can only happen when you move in. So everywhere interchange is, we are living in communities like this. We're in some, there's a, a township of a million plus people in South Africa. And I thought, the optimist that I am, in 1993-94, when the, nail, the nails were finally ha- hammered into the coffin of apartheid, I thought all kinds of outside people, including white people, would move to the townships. That has not happened except with our team. So, there's just so much work to be done if you're willing to actually invest Wait to be invited and move into a community. Can I also just say one thing in here in terms of, is, is it's very Western to see a need and just automatically assume the privilege that you get to do it. It's just very Western. We're so in charge of our lives. I've never moved into a community where my future neighbors didn't help me find my apartment because I court a neighborhood for, for weeks to months until all the neighbors in there say, John, you're in here all the time. You seem like you really love us. We'll, can, we'll help you find an apartment. It's a lot more powerful as a missionary to get voted on the island than, than not you know, wait till you get up, voted off. All right, let me... um. Can we uh, go to this slide of the passage? Matt, can we go to the slide of the uh, passage? And we're going to move through this fairly quickly. This is a passage that actually does not get used much. Um, but let me read it. Soon afterward, he went to a town called Nain, and his disciples and a great crowd went with him. As he drew near to the gate of the town, Behold, a man who had died was being carried out, the only son of his mother. And she was a widow, a single mom. And, and a considerable crowd from the town was with her. And when the Lord saw her, he had compassion on her and said to her, Do not weep. Then he came up and touched the bier, and the bearer stood still. And he said, Young man, I say to you, arise. And the dead man sat up and began to speak. And Jesus gave him, him, love that language, Jesus gave him to his mother. Fear seized them all, and they glorified God, saying, A great prophet has arisen among us, and God has visited his people. And this report about him spread through the whole of Judea and all the surrounding country. I know we don't have a lot of time, but um, because I don't want to waste your time, let me pray. And then we'll hit a few things in here, and then hopefully I'll create some impressions. Father, I have a myriad of memories in this place, and, uh, and I, I'm, I'm calling them up even in this moment. I remember where I used to say it. And I it just I just get real pleasure out of the fact that you're out of time and you can see me there and now. And I want to tell you it's a privilege to be on this end with these people on a Friday night who've come out to, to hear you, not to hear me. Father, we are in a world that is hemorrhaging on the one half and cautiously retreating on the other hand. I, I it, it, This has been a dizzying year for me to be born in a country that i love some of whom some in which some people are talking about building a bigger wall to keep people out and i live in a country that i also love in the uk that is talking about digging a deeper moat to keep people out i understand father there's fear But there's desperation out there, Father. There's desperate, desperate people, like in this widow of this name. There's need spilling towards us from all sides. And I pray, Father, that you would, in this moment, in this place, and in this people, that you would anoint us for service. All kinds of service. But that you would liberate them, Father, from... Just the tyranny of self that our culture does and its four ugly stepchildren of stuff and success and status and security. Father, give us hands that give. Give us eyes that see and don't just look. Give us feet that walk and don't wait. Unclench our hearts. In fact, Give us wide open hearts, Lord. Um, Father, we're turning to this Word that is very, very seldom used, so we need you to, um, to read it. Father, we always talk about reading the Word, but we want the Word to read us. There's something in this passage that reads our world right now, and I pray that you would show that to us. So, yeah... Let us open your Word together, and uh, and we are here to we're here to listen. We're just here to listen. You are the only teacher here. Amen. So all over the world, do you have that picture, that story in mind? You know, it doesn't get a lot of attention because it's a pretty straightforward healing story. It's a it's a widow. It's an only son. It's a it's not going to get into a lot of systematic scholar, scholarly study. Um, but if you're a missionary or a ministry agent of any sort, it, it, it raises a really high bar. All over the world, there are funeral marches taking place like this one in Nain. Single moms burying their only sons, mourners marching in rhythm towards an open grave, you see it should be in a perfect world, it should be that you sons and daughters should be burying your moms at ripe old age, right, but in a fallen world, and especially in the developing world, where there 's so much so, where the, the resources are so much more slender, and people live more on the knife edge. This kind of thing happens all the time. Mothers are losing sons to knife crime in my city, London, to gang crime in Caracas where we have a team, to drive-bys in L.A. where we have a team, addiction in Nairobi. I could go on. Too many sons and daughters buried way too early. What I like about this, well, let me just say this too. Some of these deaths that I'm talking about here, the name one, aren't just, they're not all individual either. Whole communities can die to their hopes and dreams or their trust. I think of the people in Baltimore losing their trust in our authorities. Whole communities can lose hopes and dreams and bury them in this way. And even larger than that, nations. You can have a first world economy go down a percentage point or a rice harvest go bad because of climate change of climate, or a, a policy maker has a mood swing and decides to use rice for instead of food to use it for convert it to biofuel, and hundreds of thousands of people in the majority world starve. So there's a lot of stories like this, name story, up close and personal in our world. That's the first thing that I want to say is Max Dupree says that the first job of a leader is to define reality, and I'm saying that I'm giving Jesus the opportunity here to define our reality. This name story is happening all over the world. It is the reality that I see. So that's the first thing that I want to say about that. The second thing I want to say about that that the 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 way that The nature of pain and the way misery erupts into our world is when you're doing the kind of work that I do in the margins, you can be, I mean just consider this story. Jesus and his disciples are not even inside the city gate before a high need situation is already spilling out. This is the way it is in so much of the majority world or our inner cities where you can't just clock in and out when you feel that you're prepared to be on duty. I can't tell you how many times I've gotten phone calls in the dead of night or phone calls from the emergency ward that a son or daughter of the, of the neighborhood is dead or dying. I, I don't know, I, I can't count them, the times that that's happened. So the reality here, I, I hope that this doesn't just look like a quaint story. Um, the nature of pain in this story applies to our world. The second thing I want to say about this, can we go back to the first um, first slide of the words? Let's talk about this um, town of Nain. We'll just sit a minute on it. It's a four-letter word for a town that's eight miles southeast of Nazareth, where nothing good could come out of. So it's part of Galilee. So it's in kind of a backwater compared to Jerusalem. It's the only time in Scripture that this story comes up, is when this widow is bearing her only son. There's no king that was born there, no prophet, no notable leader. There was no battle fought in that area. It's an entirely untouched subject, except on the day that Jesus finds it. I don't know if it feels unusual to you that Jesus should... Doesn't it seem appropriate that a town that could be so forgotten by the by in, in Israel history... Would be found by Jesus. I mean, it, Jesus that he does all sorts of things where the, where the math is weird. Like, I'll leave the ninety-nine and go to the one. So, Nain is a marginal town. We don't know a lot about it, and, and it's not just the town is marginal, but the situation's even more mar- marginal. Because, as you probably know from studying in all of your fellowships, if you're a Nain, if, if you're a widow. And you've got a young son, because remember Jesus says young man, you've got a young son who's died, so she has an only son, and she's, a, and she's already a widow. What's her future in the years that may stretch out fairly interminably? And, and if she's got daughters, she's got even more dependents. So name is a margin here. We're in a place that of great learning in, in Princeton, and I'm sure you're doing much better with that than I did. But I want to tell you that there are other places to learn, and one of them is this kind of place. If you never choose Nain in your life, I will regret that for you. I will regret that for you. If you spend all your time in a with Jesus, like you're doing, in a Jerusalem setting with all the scholars, that's not enough. Was not enough for Jesus? It won't be enough for you. And that brings me my, to my next point is, there's, I know there's a lot of stuff that's kind of... I know it doesn't look like there's a lot of um, scaffolding in here for teaching, but there's a lot that's lurking in the vacuum here. And I want to see... The third thing I want to say here is that the disciples are learning. And how do we know that? Well, we know that, one, because after this event... The disciples do this kind of a thing. So they did watch and learn. The other way that we know that they're learning is because for one time, Peter has his mouth shut. So he's, he's, not, he's not speaking. He's not giving his he's, But they're really learning. And so that's why I wanted to go back to you and say, make sure that the portfolio that you're choosing to learn includes something other than this very, very special place that we're in. A fifth thing in this that I want to get to, and then I want to move towards a close well oh, let me just say one other thing because I talked about simplicity before. Do you see a lot of stuff what what are the what are the disciples and the crowd with them? What are they taking with them? Nothing. I mean, they probably have got people that are bringing food and, that, you know, some, something to sustain them. Because they have all those ministering people, mainly women, that would... But they're, they're not dragging a Winnebago full of ministry props or, you know... Because this is going to be life on life. And that's the other thing I want to say is, if you're going to be in a place like this, like that I showed you before, expect to go and become a son and daughter in that community and study language and grow up in that culture and live that life. I think one of the hardest things for your generation in terms of simplicity will be cutting off your social media. It's going to be really, really difficult for you because you are... I've seen it just, it's such a struggle to see... I mean, you you can't go to any place in the world and not be in touch with your friends and see what they're doing. It's, so one of the things that I want to say in here is that Jesus is, and His disciples are fully present in that place. And for simplicity's sake, you should not take a lot of stuff with you, and you should not expect you should expect to be able to do the leaving mothers, fathers, sisters, and brothers, so that you can join mothers, fathers, and sisters, and brothers. So the, the disciples aren't taking a lot here; they're not doing a lot, which means they were that, like I said, they were learning. And let's just go to the last. Um, Well, let's yeah, let's pick up yeah. So Jesus comes up, and he says to the widow, "Do not weep." Oh, what's interesting for me is how Jesus manages. I know I've seen gifted people do this, but Jesus manages to have a private moment with a widow that I think the disciples might have overlooked. I think the crowd might have overlooked. But Jesus, knowing his mom, was going to grieve at his cross. There is no way he is not going to stop. And he says, do not weep. And you have this wonderful personal moment in this highly public setting of hundreds and hundreds of people. And the language in here that I think is really special. Um, I mean, all the the Gospels are incredibly lean in their language. Um, But when you see a passage like this where it says that he gave her back to his mother, or gave him, I'm sorry, back to his mother, we are talking about ministering with a kind of love. That is more than what a caseworker would do. I mean, thankfully, we have a master who knows us by name and not by number. And most of the deepest pains in the world that are coming out of places like I showed you before are going to require that personal presence and level of understanding as opposed to a lot of solutions. So I love what Jesus does there. Um, I love how he revives the person. Um, Bill, how much time do I have left? Like two minutes? Yeah. So, as I said, all, all over the world, there are funerals taking place like this. And in the power of Jesus' name in interchange, we have stopped some of those. We've reversed some. Um, But most of them we won't, but we'll at least be present and we'll at least be there. I think with pain in the world, Satan does such a good job, especially in communities that that are so oppressed. He does such a good job to make it seem like when a widow buries her only son, it's inevitable. But what I love about this story is that Jesus shows that it's interruptible. And we have the possibility of doing that. Let me tell you a short story just to close. Um, a, a few years back, Dave Everett, who's on our staff in Cambodia, who's, he's a 300-pound rock climber. And he's larger than any two Cambodian men generally, but he is such a gentle man and he's a just a magnet for men, and so he's also a former dirt bike rider and he's he taught himself medicine in Cambodia. Um, so he he would routinely take fleets of um, pastors and medical people out into into the, somewhere what they call the black holes of Cambodia, places even the Khmer Rouge didn't go to, so they can pray for the sick and see supernatural healing, and if not see that, they can do medical treatment. And there was a situation one time where they were in Mandalkri um, province, and way out where no one, I mean, spoke the the Khmer was even different. And there was, and they were praying for people, and a lot of people got healed of some fairly minor things. But it was a real faith builder. And then, and then a family brought a child that had died to Dave and Lisa. And Dave, you know, it was one of those moments where he felt like Clark Kent needing Superman. But he laid his hands on the baby. He called over the the other pastors and the Cambodian pastors that were with them and they wailed and prayed loudly and the the mother's tears watered the the baby and nothing happened but the but the parents did not want to give up and so they put the baby at 8 or 9 at night in a hammock and and refused to bury the baby that night. They they said there was time enough to do it in the morning. At 7 in the morning, the baby was wide awake and had gained about 4 pounds, was completely healed. And as Dave said, you know, how did that happen? I laid my hands on them. The pastors prayed the loudest. The mother's tears watered the body. But God raised that little son. It does happen occasionally that we get to interrupt the inevitability of what Satan is doing in our world. And I hope some of you do that. So... Sorry I'm out of time. It's really good to be with you. It's, it's really fun to be on this end. But, so thank you. Thank you for coming on a Friday night. I can tell you that I would not have done that on my Friday nights.